In this lesson, we will focus on biological terror as a tool to deter war. Specifically, we'll use the case study of Finland and the Baltics, and if there's time, we'll look to other AORs in seminar on how they try to instill biological fear into much larger, wealthier governments, militaries, but also putting fear specifically into the government, the military, the family members of the military, and civilians in Russia to keep the Russian government from any future hostilities, malign influence, attempted partial annexation, or any level of warfare impelled by some future event. There are two sides of this fear and deterrence coin. One side is communicating a type of warfare that might deter a future attempted incursion. In Finland, it may include, for example, a promise of sustained, brutal, ruthless, underground tunnel warfare, along with nullifying Russian technology and armaments. The other side of this fear and deterrence cord, uh, coin is communicating an unusual will to fight, what some might call a national transcendent narrative, or sacred value. And to see that communication of this dedication to fight, kill, and die as it translates, perhaps, into deterrence against a stronger power. Sun Tzu said, The best of all is to vanquish a foreign army without a fight. The idea is to focus on results. Whatever the balance of psychological and physical strength is necessary, focus on paralyzing an enemy, not necessarily on casualties inflicted or effort put forth or number of body bags, not just focus on the tools of hard power that you happen to have at your disposal. As we read from Catulia, he says the arrow shot by an archer may or may not kill a single man, but skillful intrigue devised by wise men can kill even those who are in the womb. So perhaps winning a war of ideas or winning through fear or winning a story can lead to a sort of checkmate, can erase a conflict before that conflict is even an idea. Liddell Hart focuses on a strategist, and I quote, should think in terms of paralyzing, not of killing. At the tactical level, he claims that a man killed is merely one less man. A man unnerved, though, is a highly infectious carrier of fear capable of spreading an epidemic of panic. So tactical actions within the psychological warfare domain can have strategic effects. On the operational level, he goes on to say the impression made on the mind of the opposing commander can nullify his whole fighting power. And at the strategic level, he explains that psychological pressure on a government, on an enemy government that is, may cancel all the resources at their command so that the sword drops from a parallel, uh, paralyzed hand. So this idea of victory before war is, an even, uh, is even an idea has been obsession by political philosophers and by strategists throughout history. One possible way of attaining this is through fear or through biological terror. So now I'm going to look a little bit at Genghis Khan. And I'm going to quote, uh, I'm going to mix in different quotes and paraphrases from J.J. Saunders, The History of the Mongol Conquest from 71, W.V. Bartlett's The Mongols 2012, and Jack Weatherf uh, Weatherford's Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World 2004. If you guys have any questions on these citations, I'll make sure that they are uploaded uh, to Blackboard. So... What is Genghis Khan's relevance today? Now, although Mongol invasions, war crimes, their crimes against humanity, they're unlikely ever to be repeated again, but perhaps we can learn something about amplifying power 
in winning without fighting to apply today's world. And that's really our challenge is to look for applications. The Mongols, and I quote, unleashed terror as they rode. Those cities that surrendered to the Mongols had at first found that they were so mild benign in comparison with the horrific stories that they circulate. The idea is that the Mongols wanted city-states to surrender before they even arrived. I go on to quote, the terror, he realized, in this case Genghis Khan, was best spread not by the acts of warriors, but by the pens of scribes and scholars. The Mongols operated a virtual propaganda machine that spread fear wherever its words carried. And I quote, increasingly paper was the most potent weapon in Genghis Khan's arsenal. Genghis Khan allowed people to freely circulate the worst and most incredible stories about him and the Mongols. He allowed an open information environment so rumors and exaggerations and lies would spread to the point where the numbers of dead were reported for centuries to have been, as we know now, greater than the number of people on earth at that time when Genghis Khan was alive. Now I want to move on to uh, General William Tecumseh Sherman uh, towards the end of the U.S. Civil War. He writes, my aim then was to whip the rebels, to humble their pride, to follow them to their inmost resource, uh, recesses and make them fear and dread us. Fear is the beginning of wisdom. General Sherman felt that wisdom was the South giving up their what was a uh, illegal and also doomed to fail attempt to try to secede from the Union. This was someone that believed in total war. He went down to the South in Georgia and North Carolina to disrupt Southern supplies and supply lines. In his march to the sea, that was between Savannah, or excuse me, Atlanta to Savannah, November, December, 1864, he targeted industry, infrastructure, private property, destroyed hundreds of miles of railroad, thousands of horses he killed, mules, uh, seized uh, tens of thousands of heads of cattle, and uh, millions of pounds of corn. In today's currency, the damage comes to a little under one and a half billion dollars, which at the end of the day is something even the South, even as they were being squeezed economically, it's something that someone, that a country or a nation or an area could possibly recover from. But what was the real psychological target? That's what I want us to ask ourselves. Was it the loss of slaves and wealth and identity and culture? Was it to force the Confederacy to stretch even thinner than they already uh, were, having to take people off the front lines to protect homes? Was it to show a will to kill, a will potentially to burn everything to the ground eventually, if not during these marches in Georgia and North Carolina, then later on? A will to kill everyone eventually, if necessary, to win the war. To kill the idea of any two-state or two-country reconciliation. Kill any hope of an armistice with separate governments. To uh, show a will to treat even civilians and civilian governments as part of the Confederacy that were executing high treason. A will to play, if you will, the role of a Judas character and lose ultimately his soul, his value system, any morals he might have had in order to serve the greater purpose of a restored republic. Now I want to go on to the other side of the coin of fear and deterrence, and that is the idea of transcendence. When I say transcendence, I'm not talking about spiritual transcendence. I'm talking about the inspiration to exceed what you think are your normal limits. So think back to a coach, to perhaps a senior NCO or an officer, maybe a sibling, a friend, a parent that push you to go, pushed you to go physically, 
psychologically and mentally farther than you thought at first possible. Catulia tells us that a conqueror should infuse enthusiastic spirit amongst his men to frighten his enemy's people. Flavius Augustus in 602 AD says courage and discipline are able to accomplish more than a large number of warriors. Clausewitz claims that courage and self-confidence are essential in war. Scott Atrin often talks about intermittently, or in some cases for duration, many people seek a purpose greater than themselves, that messages of survival, comfort, moderation are unlikely to compete with cosmic messages that promise hardship, sacrifice, and even perhaps death for a higher calling. George Orwell tells us that human beings don't want comfort, safety, short working hours. They also, at least intermittently, want struggle and self-sacrifice, or as you say, they want oftentimes struggle and self-sacrifice. Eric Hoffer, a historian, says that the fanatic and the moderate are actually the ones that are poles apart. According to Rand on Will to Fight, canonical literature on war, the most prominent generals in history of warfare and current doctrines argue that the will to fight is the most important factor in war. They go on to write in 2018, because will to fight cannot be neatly or precisely quantified, military leaders, advisors, and analysts often ignored or give it short shrift, that there is no generally accepted military or scientific definition, explanation, or model of will to fight. Further, there are no commonly accepted definitions or explanations of some of the key terms associated with will to fight. But just because it's difficult certainly doesn't mean we shouldn't try. So I want to look to the Viet Minh and the idea of common resolve. General Giap in 75 wrote, our strategic decision became the common resolve of our entire people, our party, our entire nation, the army in the south and the north, inspiring our nation to unite as one man. And I want us to ask us whether this kind of common resolve may have played a role in the Viet Minh's ability to survive the conflicts against the Japanese, the French, the US, and then China in the 20th century. Sort of one thought on this is this idea of unity of mission uh, and will to fight because of this mission, a dedication to a mission, specifically its self-determination by any means, uh, by any outside assistance through any ideology as long as it jived with Vietnam's traditional means of governance and stability, which in many areas was agricultural collectivism, at least not in the mountainous areas. The idea was that even if Japan and then the French and then the U.S. and then China, um, that despite these invasions, Vietnam would survive. And notice I say survive and not necessarily prevail in a Western traditional sense of military victory. The idea was that if the entire military of Hanoi were killed, that is the leaders, if all the political party members were killed, all the guerrillas somehow dropped dead in the South, especially in the fight against the United States, and even if most civilians were killed off, if there were just a few children that were left, they could arise from their underground bunkers and continue the movement of Viet Minh self-determination for generations to continue to outlast and survive outside hostilities. And finally, we come to the idea of Sisu in Finland. It literally means guts, but it does not translate into any other language. It oftentimes is described as realistic expectations of the obstacles and hardships of life, a rare grit, resilience, and self-reliance, a sober outlook, uh, outlook excuse me, on life and warfare, promises no easy wins, but instead long-suffering for eventual survival and victory. 
that perhaps this phenomenon of Sisu is not an artificial rallying cry, but instead reflects the mindsets of citizens. According to Emilia Lati, who's a Finn and the world's foremost scholar on the concept and foundational narrative and phenomenon of Sisu, and I do an interview with her on one of my podcasts from last year, she says, uh, Sisu is strength, perseverance in a task that for some may seem almost hopeless. Some may feel that we can come to the point of our preconceived capacities, but you could say with Sisu, it is energy determination in the face of adversities that are more demanding than usual. That we all have these moments when we all need to reach beyond what we think we are capable of. At the end of physical, emotional, and psychological endurance, she says, we then have some kind of force, that is the Sisu, that allows us to continue even when we thought we couldn't. Thank you.